Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13. So we have just this last chapter left. I don't even know how, when we started Nehemiah. It's been a while. But we're finally coming to the home stretch here. It'll take uh, today and Lord willing next Sunday and we will finish it. And Lord willing, I'll finish Nehemiah and head to Jerusalem with the team uh, right after that. So Nehemiah 13, starting with verse 1. Nehemiah 13, starting verse 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. Isn't that great? That God can turn the enemy's curse against you into a blessing? Now, that was just a remembrance of the past. That's really not the, the, the real focus of this passage. It moves on in verse 3. So it was when they heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. Now, before this, Eliashib, the high priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of God, was allied with Tobiah. And he prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the offerings for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after, after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. Then I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah and prepared a room for him in the house or in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Oh, this is old these are old-time pastors right here, you know, old-time <laughs> prophets. He just started tossing stuff. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms and brought, them, brought back the articles of the house of God with grain offering and the frankincense. I also realized that the portion of the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites and Siggers had gone, who did the work had gone back to his field. They found new careers. Levites were like, we can't do the job anyway. There's no, there's no money coming in from, from the people of God. So they returned to their fields. They went back and became small business folks or farmers and such. Verse 11. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together and set them in their place. And all Judah brought the tithe and the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouse uh, Shelemiah the priests, and Zadok, the scribe, and the Levites, and Padiah, and the next was them was Hanan, and the son of Zakur, and the son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. Remember me, O God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Actually, let me read verse 15 as well. In those days, I saw the people in Judah treading the wine press on the Sabbath and bringing the sheaves and loading donkeys with wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath 
to the children of Judah and Jerusalem. Last one, verse 17. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil that you have done, which you profane the Sabbath day? Let's pray. Father, we just stop right here, and we ask again for your spirit. We ask that you would minister in our midst. You'd take away every distraction. Lord, that you would allow us to hear from you. And Lord, remove me out of the way as much as possible, that your word and your word alone would stand and your spirit would speak and you would reveal yourself for you desire there to be revival and not fade. But Lord, we pray that we would uh, have ears to hear in the inner man, not just the physical ears, but Lord, the spiritual ears. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, where we left off with chapter 12, the dedication of the wall and the coinciding work of revival that had been taking place from chapters 8 through chapters 12, with the, remember, the completion of the walls themselves, the gates put back in place then, and most important, most impactful, was the public reading of the Word of God. Ezra and the the leaders began to read the word, and people stood for hours hearing the word of God read to them. And that began a domino effect, a good one, that was deeply penetrating the people's hearts. Because after the word was read in chapter 8, then came the conviction. And when the conviction came, the confession of sin. First, you have to have the conviction of sin before you would confess, right? The conviction came. Then the confession of sin. Then came a recommitment to the ways of the laws of the Lord. They went back and said, we have neglected these things that God has clearly told us to do. And that was in the form of a covenant. Then came a full surrender to whatever, and as we looked at last week, wherever God even said to live. If that was to, in the lottery thing where they, you live in Jerusalem or you live out in the country, whatever, wherever God says, this is what I want for your lives. And then came the part we love, joy and rejoicing, and the singing, and the worship. Well, that part, that always feels good in our emotions, right? When we worship and we saw the praise and they were heard from a far way off. And as we saw, the culmination of all God had done in building, in restoring, in regathering, in redeeming, it sprung that that worship was from the, it was from the heart. It was genuine. It was authentic. It wasn't just lip service. That's why they were singing with such passion and such loud voices. And the walls were dedicated, but more importantly, the lives were dedicated. They were dedicating their lives because, again, their lives are like little bricks in the wall all fitted together because this is a, a revival that affected everyone, or at least a large group, if you will. Hearts were surrendered. Careers were surrendered. Relationships were surrendered. Bank accounts were surrendered. Time was surrendered. The men, the women, the children, everyone thanking and praising God. And not begrudgingly, but out of real joy. You know when someone's doing something begrudgingly, right? And you know when they really want to help you out of joy? You don't really want them helping you begrudgingly, do you? And God saw that the joy was genuine. And so as we pick it up with this final chapter in Nehemiah, uh, we actually see one final piece of the revival that starts off 
chapter 13. And one final component of this day of rejoicing, because the first three verses are still uh, the final concluding verses of what takes place on the day of the walls being dedicated. So it's the, what we see in these first three verses, the same piece, our little spark that lit the flame in the first place. And what is that? The reading of the word of God. God says, I place my word even above my name. The reading of the word of God. This final punctuation, the revival and dedication. And then after verse 3, there's this fast forwarding to several years later. And we'll get to this in just a second. A progress report or lack thereof post-revival is what starts to take place in verse 4 and beyond. Uh, But it's an examination and a reminder to us all What we see that when Nehemiah goes away and the revival begins to fade, it's an examination for all of us because revivals are definitely a blessing. I've never been part of a revival. I've read about them. I like reading about them. I've been praying for one. I've had a personal revival. I I once was lost, but now I'm found. You've had a personal revival in that respect. I've had God revive me on numerous times where I was like, Lord, I don't think I can go on. And I've been revived numerous times like that. But as far as seeing revival in the body of Christ, I've not seen it. I think there was one in the early 70s when Pastor Chuck and and, uh, the Jesus Movement and Calvary Chapel was part of that. We weren't the only part of that. But I believe there's been some revivals at times, but I haven't personally been a part of one. I was like three at that time. I wasn't really thinking about that. But revival can be forgotten. It can be completely ignored. And if you're taking notes, what we're looking at this morning, when revival fades. And the first thing I want to take a look at, starting in verses 1 and 3, uh, and again, we looked at the, the footnote of, you know, the, the writing here tells us about the blessing, that, uh, the curse that became a blessing. That's simply re- speaking to the fact that, you know, Balaam was hired by these pagan nations to curse the children of Israel, and God instead had him bless the children of Israel. But God was still opposed from that time to the Ammonite and the Moabite people. They, were, they had a false religion, and they were involved in idolatry, and, and yet on top of all that, uh, they had rejected the children of God. And so at the end of the reading of the Word of God, there was still a few that God was speaking to about uh, this mixed multitude, this mixing with the world. And with all the confession and all the contrition and all the commitment in the previous chapters and the purity of the worship, it would seem that everything that needed to be cleaned and removed had already been done. It would seem that way. But the Word of God and the work of revival always goes a little bit deeper. Wouldn't you agree? It always goes deeper than what you can see on the outside. It searches out. And understand that revival often comes in waves. Any of you have ever been to the ocean, you know that sets, they come in. When when I used to surf and stuff, we'd think that sets were in about uh, seven waves, and one wave would be larger than the other waves. They would come, and it is true. I mean, the waves are not all the same uh, in a set. They'll be coming in, but there'll be one that will be a peak wave. It'll It'll be bigger. And it'll wash up shore a little bit further. It'll, you know, ever 
had your chair parked on the beach and you thought, this is a nice, safe place for the blanket. And then, gone, you know, right out, drenched. Because revival will go a little deeper in that respect. But understand it comes in waves that revival's always from God. We can't make a revival. We can't prompt a revival. We can't force one. It comes down out of heaven from God. But it can be spread out over time as it was in Jerusalem. It, it wasn't a one-day thing. It took multiple weeks as this kind of transpired. God can do it in a day. Nineveh was done in a day by a dude that didn't even want to preach revival. How about that? I hope none of you repent. See you later. They all repented. Proof that God does not need any of us to have any skill or any, even have the right attitude about it. God says, even if the wrong attitude, if it's the right message, I will anoint it. So Jonah goes, you all need to do this, but I hope you don't. And they did. It's great. Takes the pressure off us, doesn't it? Although we don't want to be like Jonah in that. We want to have the right attitude. And by the way, the men on Friday are going to the book of Jonah, so come join them at 7 a.m. But uh, the revival, it's more like uh, clean the dust, it clings. You ever had the house clean and, you, and there's still one spot that you found a little bit of dust? Especially you clean freaks, you know who you are. <laughs> like wringing out a wet towel. You think you've got every, there's still more that can come out of it, right? There's still a little bit more. There's still more. Get another person on the end, like at the pool when we were kids. You, get, you, you turn this way, I turn it counterclockwise. There's more that can come out. And that's what the Word of God does. It rings out all the impurities the more it is read, the more it is digested. Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and merits a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The day of, get, the day of dedication, it was prompted by the word. It would be punctuated by the word. The gathering of God's people is always around him and his word. Him and his word. It's the word of God, illuminated by the spirit of God, that will do the greater work. Amen? Amen. The word of God, illuminated by the spirit of God, will do the greater work. Not you and me and our great quotes or thoughts or ideas. Now God may give you some of those. He's given me some, but his word is the centerpiece of everything. It's the greater work to purify. The Lord says, be ye holy for I am holy. Some of you even knew that verse. You know, the people were either in compliance or not to the commitments they had made in chapter 10. And of course, they, uh, they realized they weren't. And so that is why the Word of God has read this one last check here, where we really at. Now, it seems like there may have been some stragglers still in the mix that had still not really separated. That's what we're seeing here in verse 3. So it was when they heard the law, they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. You, if you thought, well, everyone already did that, uh, it, it's either referring back one of two things is happening here. Either there were still some stragglers that had not yet separated, and finally they did. Like, you ever had the altar call? There's one person that's the last one. And God loves the last one to come forward. Amen? I'll never forget when we were at Calvary Fort Lauderdale. And the altar call had been given for like, it was like a seven-minute call. And it was about to be closed up, and a guy yelled from the back, wait for me. 
and came running. It, st- it stayed in my mind to this day that God will give a final call past the call. Isn't that great? A couple of you still have these mixed relationships. Is there anyone else that's willing to give this up? So either that's happening or, because the way it's written, it's hard to tell exactly, or this is actually the moment that they do the formal separation of that which they committed to in the covenant. One of the two. Or a combination of both. So sometimes in the scriptures you can't be dogmatic on things. God records it, but he doesn't tell us exactly how it went. But those are the options that we have before us. And uh, the thing is that at this point, everyone does do it, either in the formal process or stragglers. And now the priesthood is left in place. Now, Nehemiah, at this point, revival is complete. He can say, priesthood, lead the people, shepherd the people, teach the word. I must now return to Babylon. The king gave me X amount of time to rebuild the walls, to serve as governor, to see spiritual renewal. I'm going back to Babylon. I hope to hear of all the amazing things God does while he has reestablished his holy city, the temples in operation, the priesthood, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the offerings are coming. Everything is in place, and he heads back to Babylon. But then comes verse 4. Now before this, Elijah the priest having authority over the storeroom of the house of God was was, uh, alive with Tobiah. And and so he gives uh, this background that, let me kind of walk you through this for just a second. We're not going to reread all those verses. Um, If you were here with us on Wednesday night, and I know most people, most we don't have the same number of people that come on Wednesday night. We have a much lighter group on a Wednesday night, but if you were here, you'll recall that Paul outlined how important godly character and godly commitment to the Lord needs to be from those that are leading. Paul says it's imperative when he's talking to Titus. Now, Nehemiah had been that example, wouldn't you agree? Nehemiah had been that example of godly character, integrity, righteousness. He's not perfect, but he truly was, he had a heart for the Lord. Uh, Eliashib is the high priest. He's mentioned in verse 4, Eliashib's the high priest. And Eliashib may have started out well, but at some point Eliashib ignores the commands of God and becomes more concerned with the approval of men. Did you know a lot of ministries have become compromised because the pastors are more concerned with what people think than what God thinks? Do you know the good news when I get to heaven, I'll never have God say, I want to know how so-and-so thought. He's only going to ask me what he thought. Amen? Amen. Now, if we get that right, we're going to get the other stuff right. But at some point, Eliashib becomes more concerned with the approval of men, and the ripple effect and the consequences will always flow from leadership down. If parents, you compromise, guess what? Your kids are likely going to compromise. If our leaders, political leaders, compromise, we wonder why everybody else does too. Of course, the Bible says it's a two-way street. We heap up what we want, and then we complain about it, too. <clears throat> happens in ministry, happens in politics, you name it. But when um, Nehemiah heads back, there's about a 10, we don't know exactly, the, we, it's between a 10 to 12-year gap between Nehemiah going back to Babylon 
and what starts to take place with this compromise and the revival fading. So it's a 10 to 12 years. We don't know if it happened in year one, year two, year seven. We're not sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. But there's about a 10 to 12 year gap between verse 3 and verse 4. In Nehemiah in verse 6, he tells us he returns to Babylon. And later he comes back from Babylon to serve a second term as governor. And we don't know for sure if he knows when he's coming back that things have gone awry or if he's coming back because they've gone awry. And that's not really told either. But when Nehemiah comes back, I'm sorry, when Nehemiah goes back to Babylon, when he goes back to Babylon, the people have recommitted to the Lord. Their hearts are soft. Their hearts are surrendered. Eliashib, the high priest, you know, he seemed to be doing the right stuff when Nehemiah goes back. But what he's saying in verse 4 Verse 4 is kind of an isolated verse. What he's telling us is Eliashib and Tobiah had a long-term relationship even before Nehemiah came the first time. Does that make sense? When the walls were still rubble, Eliashib the high priest was already there. Ezra was already there. Nehemiah came after the fact. Eliashib and Tobiah already had a close relationship and even they were considered allies of one another. This is before Nehemiah came the first time. It's believed that um, Tobiah, uh, by, by the way, Tobiah, you might remember, along with Sambalot and Geshem, they opposed the rebuilding of the walls. They did not want the walls rebuilt. Um, they opposed everything that Nehemiah did. It's believed that Tobiah, who was an Ammonite, they were supposed to separate from the Ammonites. Remember, verses 1 through 3. He was an Ammonite, but Tobiah is a Jewish name. He was an Ammonite, but he had a Jewish name. Kind of interesting, huh? He had married a Jewish woman, and he had married into what scholars believe was a prominent Jewish family. And remember, intermixing was common. It wasn't supposed to be common, but it had become the norm. Lots of people in Jerusalem and Judah were marrying non-Jewish people and bringing their idols in to the home. You're going to see when we get to next week, he cites none other than the biggest offender of this starting of this is Solomon. Nehemiah calls out Solomon as, thanks a lot for starting this trend. When our leaders start things, people follow eventually. Not a good thing. We'll get to that next week. But Again, uh, it's not, it wasn't God's issue that a Jewish person could not marry a non-Jewish person. No, the issue was the non-Jewish person had to have surrendered to God. We already know that Rahab was not Jewish, right? That Ruth was a Moabitess. God was always willing to accept non-Jewish people into a marriage as long as the non-Jewish person started to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that was not Tobiah. Tobiah was playing games. He had the Jewish name, but he didn't have a heart for the Jewish God. And yet, because he had this prominent family, Eliashib worked with him. Now, from a worldly perspective, Tobiah seems to me to be a smooth operator. He likes Satan. He's crafty. He's a schmoozer. He works the room, Right? He has the political back office deals that no one knows about. He's got something on everybody. 
You ever say, they got pictures of you? That, yeah, that's Tobiah. He might say some of the right things, but then the longer you get to know him, you get a sense it's not adding up. You ever meet someone like this? The longer you meet them, you're like, I'm not sure I'm ever getting a true answer from this person I'm talking to. But Eliashib, for some reason, had ignored Tobiah's red flags. He's the high priest. He should be the last one to ignore these things. But he had ignored these red flags, perhaps because he's of a prominent family. This Jewish family, we don't know. But even though Nehemiah, he, he had clearly been sent by the Lord. And when Nehemiah was working on the walls, Eliashib fully submitted to Nehemiah. Eliashib was doing the right thing, praying there, up there with Ezra. All, so he was, he was really pulling the right direction while Nehemiah was there. And it seems that even uh, as Tobiah would scheme and come against Nehemiah, Eliashib was, was standing with Nehemiah, but we don't see him ever rebuking Tobiah. It's always Nehemiah, the one rebuking Tobiah. He never rebuked him. He doesn't ever seem to cut off all the ties with Tobiah. I'm speaking about Eliashib. So while Eliashib would endeavor to lead the people into worship of God, he seems to make an exception for Tobiah. There's the, there's the Tobiah rule and everyone else's. We see this in politics in America, don't we? There's our rules and then there's everyone else's rules. That should never be in the church. Amen. God's no respecter of people. It, it, you know, there's no hierarchy. Well, I have a set of rules. I can do whatever I want. You can't. No. Or this person can, but this person can't. No. Everyone has the same requirements under the Lord. Now, Tobiah seems uh, to have intimidated and fooled others as well. He remains connected to leaders. And even after revival, at some point, his... his uh, influence seems to go at even a higher, more unprecedented level. Eliashib, while Nehemiah has gone back to Babylon, he at some time becomes more concerned with pleasing Tobiah than pleasing God. That's compromise. He's worried about what Tobiah thinks. And if, to, uh, if Tobiah had portrayed himself as some godly dude, which I think he did, I think he probably portrayed himself as, hey, you know, I got a Jewish name, Tobiah. I'm part of the Jewish family. We go to temple. The Pharisees did all this too, right? Jesus said they were full of dead men's bones. They had all the right outward things to say. But uh, whatever happens, at some point, whether it's Tobiah's request or Eliashib makes the offer, he decides to give an apartment in the temple. Tobiah, why don't you take this room? Take the storehouse room. Now, nobody that would have a supposed fear of the Lord would take that room. That tells you a lot about Tobiah. Anyone who has a fear of the Lord, that, you know, uh, most of you, we're, if we have a love offering back there, how many of you would say, if someone says, hey, why don't you take this box? You got needs too. That's a, that's a mighty evil line to cross, isn't it? Right, right, right. That had an intended use, and it wasn't for you. 
And so the, the, the storehouse had an intended use, and Tobiah's like, sure, I'll take it. Kick everything else out. I'll make, and I don't think this was his only living place. He was a guy that had a home here, a home here. This was like his New York City Fifth Avenue spot. Wow. I'll have a place on the high place of the city because the temple's built on the high point. Sure, I'll take a room there. I have a room up here. I have one in Samaria. I have over here, you know, whatever. Yeah, I need a, I need a nice weekend place every now and then to hang out. Let's not, not any place, in the temple. No fear of the Lord whatsoever. It was to be the room that was holding the storehouses for what? The resource for the offerings, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, backup supplies, oil, all these things. Now, perhaps Eliashib threatened to pull his and the prominent family's tithes and offerings. Maybe he said to, uh, you know, Tobias, Eliashib, hey, you know, uh, you either make sure you take good care of me or I'll influence the other prominent families, and you could see a dip in giving. We don't know. It's possible. Or, some, or we'll stop supporting you in the priesthood. Or we'll, or we'll, make, we'll, make, up, uh, we'll make your life difficult. Whatever it was, Eliashib buckled to it and said, sure, we'll make you a sweet pad in there. We'll kick everything else out. We don't know, but what we do know is the coddling of Tobiah by Eliashib and giving him an apartment inside the temple, which was a total affront to God, does the complete opposite. Everyone stops giving. <laughs> you know, it's like the very thing, you know, whenever you make a deal with the devil, guess who wins? Right? None of it worked. The whole compromise ends up having an implosion on the spiritual temperature of the people. If you compromise with the enemy, you lose every time. If you compromise with the enemy, you're going to lose every time. Elijah brings sin into the camp. He brings the sin into the camp. At first, there was probably no noticeable difference. At first, when the apartment opened up, probably things went on as normal. You know, at first, when sin enters, no one knows about it, things kind of move the same. But the poison is now spreading, Right? And no one can see it because it's a spiritual realm, but God can see it. And it's entered in. And it might not be noticeable, but over time, his compromise starts to become everyone else's compromise. His compromise becomes the people's compromise. And the revival that had produced a genuine recommitment on the part of the people was three parts. Remember the three parts? I'll remind you. This was the three part of the revival. One was a purity in marriage relationships. No intermixing of purity in marriage relationships. No intermixing with the pagan worship. Purity in the marriage relationship. Number two, they were to honor, they were going to go back and stop neglecting the Sabbath, not sabotaging the Sabbath, not, you know, desecrating the Sabbath. They were going to keep the Sabbath holy again. And, and all the feast days too. The Sabbath and the feast days, that was number two. Number three, they were going to return to giving the tithes and the offerings that always belonged to God anyway, that they were stealing from God. So they said, we'll give our tithes and offerings back to the Lord. And why were, what were the tithes and offerings for? It was to support the house of God, the Levites, the singers, and all the necessary operations inside the house of God. And God says, these are the three areas that you must repent and return to. 
purity in relationships, honoring the Sabbath, and giving to me. And they did. That's what the covenant, that's what they wrote their names in the covenant. That was the recommitment. That was the worship at the dedication. All Those were the three things that they said, Lord, we've sinned against you in these areas. By the time Nehemiah returned, and we don't know, again, when it took place in the 10 and 12 years, all that had dissolved, and they were now completely no longer keeping any of those three again. Not just Eliashib, but a lot of the people. They were back to their old self-centered, self-worshipping ways. Their money belonged to them again. The Sabbath will do what we want on it. And, oh, by the way, we're going to intermix in relationships again. All of this was taken in that 10 to 12 years' time. Now, remember, there have been revivals in American history. And sadly, you can look back 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, and they do fade, don't they? And some of the children and the grandchildren of people that were used by God have started all kinds of things that Satan uses for evil. Understand that whenever there's a genuine work of God, the enemy will always sow tares in. Tobiah was a tear. Satan said, I couldn't stop the revival, but what I can do is I can slip a Tobiah in. And Tobiah will actually make some little Tobias. And Eliashib will compromise. And if I can't stop the revival, I can cool it off. And that's what he does. He tries to, there's always going to be counterfeits and compromise within the saints. Jesus said to Christ, you know, the disciples in leadership, don't just tear everything up because you've got to be careful. You might tear up the good with the counterfeit. Tobiah was a counterfeit. He was used by Satan. Eliashib, understand, Tobiah was a counterfeit. Eliashib, I believe, was a believer. He was a compromiser. You may be here today and you might not be counterfeit, but are you compromising? You may be saved, but are you compromising? You may, may not save. That would make you a counterfeit. The Lord knows who are his. His sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. If you don't follow him, you don't hear his voice, that's, that's not a good sign. But Eliashib was a compromiser. Tobiah was a counterfeit. I believe Eliashib was genuine, but I believe, here's what I believe happened with Eliashib, and it can happen to you and me in this room, and every one of us can fall prey to this. Eliashib was deceived by his fears and his worries. Eliashib was deceived by his fears and his worries. This guy had influence, and Eliashib, I believe, this is just my own, I could be wrong when I get to heaven, God say, you got that wrong. But I believe that that was his big, I think that he was afraid of what Tobiah could do. So he gave him whatever he wanted. And that's not the first time this has happened in the scriptures, right? We've seen this happen elsewhere. He let his fears and his worries drive him instead of God's word. And he gave in. Aaron did this. He was afraid of the people. All right, give me all your jewelry. I'll make you a calf. Moses was hot about that, wasn't he? Aaron, what have you done? The people, they were all up in my grill, right? Right? They got... They, they, they just wouldn't get, they wouldn't stop, and so I couldn't take it anymore. I don't know what that came, that's old basketball talk there, so. <laughs> but we see from Nehemiah's response, he saw a difference between the two men. He throws Tobiah's stuff out. He's he, not happy with Eliashib, but he doesn't throw Eliashib out. 
but he does throw everything at Tobiah out. He sees the difference. And, and when you know someone's a believer, you're going to put an arm around them. But, but if you know someone is being used by Satan, you've got to, like, kick them right out the door. And that's what Paul tells Titus. You get to get the false teachers out. But the ones that are actually deceived, you've got to like mend their wounds. And even Eliashib, leader, compromised, but Nehemiah is sent to get these things right. And don't be surprised when a beautiful work of the Lord is, accom- is accompanied by counterfeits. When a beautiful work of the Lord is accompanied by the temptation to make compromises to make everybody happy. And this is one of the big problems of the American church today. The church is driven by consumerism, not a holy God. I can't count how many people I said, I'm looking for a church that meets this, that, and I hear their checklist. I'm like, nowhere in there did I hear, thus saith the Lord to your life. It was, I'm giving God my wish list. And it better have an espresso machine, and it better have great worship, uh, you know, famous pastor, uh, I won't say his name, but someone came up to him and said, um, I didn't really like the worship here today. And he said back to him, he goes, that's, that's fine because we weren't worshiping you. <laughs> and this is what God says to the consumer-driven church. You know, God's like, when did it become what you want? I, I gave you the things I wanted you to repent of. These are the things. Tobiah doesn't run the show here. Amen. Amen. And that's what Nehemiah is like. What are you, why are we listening to this worldly influence when the revival was pure, and now you've got this guy who, who thinks like Wall Street telling the church how to operate? Right. And then we see this happening in the church. Jonathan Edwards said that there are some counterfeits. There's no argument that nothing is true. Such things are always expected in a time of Reformation. If we look into church history, we shall find no instance of any great revival of religion but that has been attended with many such things. Jonathan Edwards is saying, and every time where there's been a movement of God, there's always been Satan sowing the false in, sowing the compromise in. And it's up to the people of God and the leaders of God, pastors, evangelists, missionaries, to say, we're going to stick to what the Word says, not what everyone says. Well, this is pretty popular, and everybody else is doing it, so we should do it. Tobias says it's the greatest way to live. But it wasn't. Last thing we look at this morning. I haven't mentioned the bullets. You can see them on the screen. So uh, last thing is correction here. We know that uh, Nehemiah didn't have, well, I don't know that he didn't have an issue with it. Uh, Correction, how many of you love correcting people? (laughs) Some of you like correcting people. That's great. We'll give you the hard jobs around here. Say, all right, you like this? Uh, great. I've got Go be as gentle as you know how. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, you know, as parents, we generally don't really like correcting because it's hard work. And I don't know how Nehemiah was really internalizing all this. He's a bold, courageous guy. He really is. You, you ain't seen the half of what he's about to do until we get to next week. Um, but I don't know how hard this was on his spirit, but he answers the call of duty. And he's sent back there, and when he sees that this is not right, he does respond like Moses. Mm-hmm. Moses took the tablets and said, I don't know what's going to happen with these, if, if I'm going to get a second set, but this one, right. right? That's what he does. Aaron's like scared at that point. Yikes, what did I do? 
correction. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son he receives. God loves revival enough to not let it fade. If you're truly saved, if you belong to the Lord, if you've been bought, uh, brought out of bondage, and you drift back and you slide back into your former ways, I'm here to tell you, if you're sliding back to the world, God is going to soon get your attention. He's not going to let you, if you belong to him, if you don't belong to him, that's a different story, isn't it? If you belong to him, he's not going to let you go back to your old ways. And I take great comfort in that, don't you? I don't endorse those leash things that parents have on toddlers at Disney World and stuff. I mean, I see people have, but in some ways, God kind of has that on us. And he has every right to because he says, you're bought with a price. You're no longer your own. So I don't, you know, not, not something we've ever endorsed. We've never lived that way. Hey, Johnny, we're going to strap like a dog on you. But God does, God does have a hold on us. He does have a hold on us, and he's not going to let us go without some correction. If you don't correct your ways with the various ways God is speaking to you with a still small voice, with the word of God, he will send someone to correct you or me. And Nehemiah was that dude. He was that someone that God says, I'm sending you back. Nehemiah, God, is a lightning rod by God. I'm sending you back. And again, I don't know if he knew this was already the case or if he knew and that's why he went back, but he was originally sent to rebuild and to bring revival, and now he's sent back to rebuke. He was originally sent to rebuild and bring revival, and now he's sent back to rebuke. And, and if you're a mature believer... Sometime in your life, you're, God's going to either rebuke you or use you to gently rebuke people that you have influence with. And you should do it gently and say, hey, you know, is that really, do you think, have you prayed about that? Is that, that doesn't seem like the person I knew 12 months ago. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have talked that way. You wouldn't have acted that way. I don't, I, that's, not what, that's not the person I saw that was on fire for the Lord. God may use you in that way. Doesn't have to be a leader. But Nehemiah was at someone who was sent back. And by the way, the more we know what to do and don't do, the more likely God is going to get very direct with us. Amen? He will get direct with us. And the voice of reason will become the voice of rebuke. I try and respond to the voice of reason with God. How about you? But the voice of reason will shift to the voice of rebuke if I won't listen to the voice of of reason. And it's not out of ignorance, but in this case with the children of Israel, it was out of rebellion, it was out of laziness, it was out of selfishness. The same things we can see as parents with kids, we see those same attitudes, they have to be addressed. And well, they're not responding to reason. The old school, then there's another option, right? There's another option to review. Nehemiah, he came the first time knowing he had a mammoth undertaking with the walls. Now he comes the second time, he has a mammoth undertaking of correction. I don't envy the job at all. How about you? One dude against an entire city. Wow. Serving God is rarely easy, folks. Serving God is rarely easy. You will be the minority at times in life, but with God, you have a majority. Isn't that great to know? It's not going to be easy, but this love for God and this fear of the Lord is the primary focus of Nehemiah's life. His love for God and his fear of the Lord allows him to remove all the other things and say, I'll go back 
And even though he probably was thinking, why should I waste more time on them? We already told them exactly what needed to be done. But he goes back and he does the work all over again. How about ours? And with a job like Nehemiah's, you're going to need God on your side, right? The Tobias of the world still have their influence, supposedly. It's going to take courage. It's going to take boldness to stand up to an entire compromised, lukewarm, rebellious congregation. A.G.A. A.B. Simpson said, one of the special marks of the Holy Ghost and the apostolic church was their spirit of boldness. The apostles were bold men because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The zeal of the Lord, a passion for truth and holiness for God drives Nehemiah to confront the sin, to confront the leaders, to confront the people, to confront the backsliding, to confront the compromise, to confront the counterfeits. And he's just getting warmed up, as you'll see next week. Nehemiah is just getting warmed up. And he says in verse 14, as we read, oh, first of all, he cast everything out of the rooms in verse 7. He commands them to cleanse the rooms, verse 9. Uh, he says, the portions, what, what is this that you're no longer giving in verse 10? I contended with them, verse 11. He is all up in their face saying, what has gone wrong? What's off the rails here? Why, in verse 11, why is the house of God forsaken? Nobody wants to answer this question. Um, like this. Tobiah did it. Eliashib's, Tobiah did it. Tobiah's saying Eliashib did it. Everyone's probably pointing fingers. But he says, and I gathered them, and I set them in their place. Paul wrote to Titus, he says, get things set in order. Can't be. And he's just getting warmed up. I don't know about you, but God, give us men like Nehemiah. Amen. Give us men like Jeremiah. Give us men like Noah. Give us men like John the Baptist. Give us men like Peter. Give us men like D.L. Moody. Give us men like Billy Graham. Give us men like Charles Spurgeon. Give us men like A.W. Tozer, right, that say, I'm not going to compromise. And I'm going to call people out of compromise and out of sin. Amen. We need, we need leaders that will speak to our other leaders. You need to repent. Forget what's politically expedient or this, that, and the other. You need repentance. That's what Nehemiah came back to correct. Men of conviction, men of commitment to Christ, men of courage. And praise God, the people listen here. Did you know that? They listen. They don't try and fight Nehemiah. They instead say, this message is not from a man. This message is from God. Isn't that great? When you hear a message from a man, I don't care if it's on the radio, you know it's from God. You know it's from God. Amen? Amen. You know, and God's saying, that's true. Everything he said is, that's, that's, that's my actual word. And so you, then you have a choice to respond to it or not. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, we just bow before you, and we acknowledge that <laughs> we can drift. We can fade. We can compromise. We might have a an apartment, but we have little compartments in our heart that we will give over to the enemy. But this, this, little, this little storeroom of my heart, I get to keep. But Lord, you want to cleanse the whole temple out. That there's always room for the provision of the Word of God and the work of God and the Spirit of God. 